0: hello everybody and welcome to the decouple podcast where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts and the politics that can make decoupling possible welcome back to decouple today i'm joined by yuri humber Yuri is the founder of the Japan NRG platform which provides regular information and analysis about the Japanese energy and power industry markets and policy. Yuri is also a columnist on the energy issues for the Nikkei Asia and co-author of an economic research report on Japan by the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. Yuri, thank you so much for making the time to come on Decouple.
1: Thank you very much Chris, it's lovely
0: to be here. All right. Yes, it, it was a challenge to schedule this. Uh, we are 13 hours apart, uh, but we, we managed to find the time. Um, Yuri, I, I like to get accolades, bona fides out of the way, um, the dry stuff, and uh, you know get to know my, my, my uh, guests on a more personal level. Um, in our pre-chat, you just told me that you were born in Belarus, uh, very close to Chernobyl. Tell me a bit about that. Tell me a bit about how you ended up in Japan.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. Well, I was 6 uh and in Gomel at the time of the uh Chernobyl accident. I was uh 31 and in Tokyo at the time of the uh, Fukushima accident. Um so one of the <laughs> things that uh that, that my colleagues at the time so I I was working for uh, for the the Bloomberg News Agency um at the time based in Tokyo. I had <laughs> I had actually moved to Japan only uh, about Three or four months before the the Fukushima accident, and so one of the kind of the grim jokes uh, doing the rounds in in the office at the time was, you know, Yuri, do let us know wh- which country we move to next because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know we want to be warned. Um, but it did give me sort of a, a slightly unique maybe uh, insight into what was going on. Um So in addition to being born in in, in Belarus. Um, And I should add that I moved to the UK when I was about 10. So I grew up in the UK, uh, and I'm a Brit. But, uh, of course, I have memories of what happened, uh, in, in then USSR. Um, I've also uh, spoken to, to my parents. Um, so I have a, you know, a a sense of what was going on at the time there. And I compared it with my experience in, in Japan to really, Sort of show how different those accidents are. People like to talk about, you know, all major accidents as being the same. Um, I don't think so. I think they Mm -hmm. were quite different. Um, and I'm not just talking about the technical side of it. I'm talking about the social side of it. So as a very, very quick example, um, you'll, you'll know that, uh, the Soviet Union did not announce the accident, uh, until I believe about two or three weeks afterwards, it sort of leaked into the, uh, into the news reports as a by the way item. Of course, it you know, it already had been picked up in the in measurements, um, I believe in Sweden um and Finland at the time. So people were aware that something was off. But uh by that point, you know, the nuclear plume had already moved all the way across to, you know, Britain and Wales. So um that that was completely different to what happened in Japan. Um you also didn't have the, the top of the reactor sort of roof blown off and go ten kilometers up into the air. Um you know, so it's, it's a very, very different in terms of immediate reaction, um, and, and consequences, uh, I think. But, you know, just to give you an example, um, the accident, ha- you know, in Chernobyl, what a month or so afterwards, you had the May Day parades, which obviously was a big part of Soviet culture at the time. Everyone go out into the streets. Uh, or had to go out into the streets with a little flag, wave it around. And, you know, my father said, uh, you know, at the time he just kept thinking, why is the rain yellow? You know, kind of an orangey yellow color. And he he got very sick. Um, you know, we all the children from from my town, which was only a hundred kilometers away, were suddenly given a a fun trip during the summer to a pioneer camp all the way <laughs> somewhere anywhere far away uh so i ended up in lithuania for for the summer which is a lot of fun um anyway the, the, the i think what i'd like to say is that you know um it, it is important to to have communication to have transparency no matter how uh how bad uh something is it's about sort of Telling people what is going on, uh, and you know that's why we make decisions. Of course, there's lots of people who are um, against nuclear power because of what happened. But I think that there were lots of suspicions about Japanese government. Are they really telling the truth? I think this really comes across in every accident, not just nuclear. There's always a suspicion that the go- the government somehow hiding the bodies, uh, and uh, so to speak. Um, but I think that you know the despite all the negative things that the um that happened uh during the accident and post you know you had a at least a a more uh let's say sincere approach to it um mm-hmm. in japan and there's been a a very very uh long uh, reconsideration period as well you know we were uh, we just had the 10 year anniversary of course uh, in march this year and um i think that you know, certainly on every level in Japan, it has been thought about quite carefully. Um, and you know, I definitely think that's a good thing.
0: (laughs) That's a very fascinating, this, uh, Nuclear accident tourism. Um, not to put that in too light <laughs> of a, a frame of reference. Um, so you know, Japan's been a little bit fascinating to me. Obviously, the victims of the first uh wartime uses of of nuclear fission technology, uh, with uh Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Um, Japan went on to uh, really embrace nuclear energy. I think it made up 30% of the electricity mix before Fukushima. Mm-hmm. Um it uh Ontario, at Canada, where I currently live, has the largest operating nuclear facility in the world, but that's only because the Kashiwazaki Kariwa plant, um, which was, I think, 500 megawatts uh, more, around 7,000 megawatts, um, uh, was in Japan. So, you know, there's this, uh, and, then, and then, of course, we have the Fukushima accident, and now talks about potentially restarting um, the industry in the context, I think, of a country that imports 90% of its uh, its energy. Um Let's uh, move through that in a little more detail than I've just kind of provided as an overview. I'm, I'm very curious uh, to understand a little bit about how we went from being the victims of atomic bombings to building an energy um, uh, paradigm that was so so based, or at least one third based in nuclear energy. Can you, can you walk us through that a little bit?
1: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, look, um, I think why Japan ended up as a major uh sort of nation of nuclear power uh, is a really interesting story and one that you know currently will a lot of people talk about energy transition i think this is a very example a very good example of energy transition because um let me just give you a little bit of other background that maybe not not quite exactly what you were expecting but um so as you know a lot of the nuclear power plants reactors were built in fukushima the fukushima area now, why Fukushima? Well, because Fukushima was actually a very large coal mining area in Japan. Mm. And this is not something that I think most people, um, are aware of, but Japan was a, w- was a big coal mining country. Um, has, even mm. though we always talk about Japan being, you know, resource poor, the reality is Japan had Quite a lot of coal, um, and started to exploit it towards the end of the uh, 19th century. So I think you got to the, to the point where you had about 130 coal mines in Japan, right? And that was sort of powering the, the economy. Uh, one of the biggest coal mines and one of the earliest coal mines was in the Fukushima area. Uh, it was called the, uh, the, the, the Joban coal field, right? And the Joban coal field employed, I think, on some point, you know, thousands of people, um, when it became clear that the uh you know obviously you have the pollution from coal uh but uh also you have the realization that you know uh it it wasn't entirely efficient um you have japan then trying to shift from coal to oil um again another uh another energy transition that spluttered because you had the uh well, you had the the situation, you know, in World War II, where Japan was cut off from oil, and therefore essentially initiated its uh, aggression. You also have the the oil shock of 1973, I believe, um, that again made Japan say, "Well, wait a minute. Um, so we could be cut off from oil. This could endanger our not only our energy security but national security. So we have to move to something else." So you have this transition from coal to oil to then let's do something new, cleaner and more secure. So that decision uh was nuclear, and it's really no surprise that the sighting of the the the, the two nuclear power plants in Fukushima, the, the Daiichi and the Daini, was right on the edge of that Joban uh coal field that I was talking about earlier. People lose their jobs um they're looking for uh some kind of replacement what are they meant to do where they're supposed to to go um there's actually a pretty interesting uh japanese film that was done um maybe mm, <laughs> around 20 years ago maybe now um called uh hula girls it's about um strangely enough, uh, a sort of a tourism resort being set up, a Hawaiian-themed tourism resort being set up in Fukushima um, and uh, to, to kind of offer jobs to the coal community and the, the coal community being against. But it came, you know, eventually somehow, you know, uh, it gets on board with it. But, you know, it's a comedy. It's a tragedy comedy about the, the really about the community losing its jobs and trying to think, where else do we go? So the vision for the person that started the, the nuclear projects in Fukushima was that, look, I'm bringing something that's clean and I'm bringing jobs. And I'd like to maintain Fukushima's uh, position as the energy provider to the really, obviously, the most populous and the industrial Kanto, uh, the Tokyo-focused um, zone that's just south. OK, so nuclear came in as a replacement for a lot of coal um today you know japan i think there is like one or two tiny mines up in uh, in the north but that's it essentially japan does not mine coal um that transition was partly enabled through nuclear that transition was not very smooth um you know because even though um again so this is the sort of the geopolitics here the us was one of the key actors of course pushing japan to go to nuclear energy partly because US had decided that it wanted to to use, you know, the peaceful side of the atom. Um, but it was uh, it was complicated. They couldn't initially actually uh, export the technology and so on. Maybe, you know, that uh, actually the very first reactor that Japan built was a British reactor. Uh, it didn't work very well,
0: it was but heavy, heavy water. Heavy water reactor, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: you know, yeah. non-enriched uranium, exactly. So technology that didn't turn out to be uh, very good, but um, it certainly kick-started the process. And then after that, of course, uh, Japan essentially... Brought in U.S. technology under license. So the, 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 some of the reactor units that got hit in the Fukushima disaster in 2011 were built by U.S. companies, GE, uh, mainly. Um, that's why that's at least one of the reasons that, you know, U.S. was heavily involved, uh, in the Fukushima, uh, salvage operation, the, the earliest stuff. stabilization right. it was because uh, you know some of those the, the designs initially came from the US and it was the Japanese companies who were building them on the license essentially right. you know Hitachi Toshiba that were coming in and and sort of let's say reinterpreting them a little bit for the the, the Japanese
0: admin um, this is this is really really fascinating because you know you're you're um, walking us through these energy transitions you know and in a sense you could see that move from coal to nuclear which I think happened fairly quickly like as a as a model for future decarbonization efforts um for countries that are using a lot of coal right now It, it also strikes me as very interesting you know japan um and this is going to expose a bit of my um Shoddy uh, attention that I paid in history class, but um, from what I understand, Japan managed to um, avoid some of the ravages of colonialism that its neighbors suffered. Uh, for instance, China um, being very protectionist, but then very rapidly industrializing. Um, I guess it was the Meiji Restoration in 1868 that kicked off the the kind of Japanese industrial revolution, where they. Mm-hmm. You know consulted with you know figured out who has the best army in the world, who is the best navy in the world, who has the best you know factories in the world and and sent their people out to learn those lessons, bring in the consultants and rapidly industrialize the country but um I have no doubt that that would have not happened or would have been a lot slower were they not blessed with coal and in just making that comparison between the the Japanese archipelago and and the uk and it's not coincidental where industrial revolutions kick off and the role that energy plays in them so. That's that's kind of pretty fascinating. I've I've uh, I've been interested in, in Japan's sort of different experience there and, and how quickly it arose from essentially a feudal nation to taking on the US in World War II. It's it's a wild story, maybe one we don't have time to get into. But um so beyond that that energy transition, um, you know, I, I forget the name. I always get this wrong. The the Hayabusha, people, the people who survived the the atomic mm-hmm, bombings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, the feelings about nuclear energy, um, I'm, I'm a Very little interested in sort of the, that 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 right. cultural motif and and how you know you, you give us kind of a, a sense of what designs were chosen but tell us a little bit about how Japanese society reacted to that um what what were the efforts that the industry undertook or was there you know u.s influence as well it sounds like to pursue this program did it just make sense mm-hmm. pragmatically as an island um, that was running out of coal perhaps to to use such an energy dense storable fuel what was How did it come about, I guess? Sure, sure. Well, look,
1: it's, uh, it's always a story with a lot of different angles, uh, and people will claim, you know, one is more important than the other. But, uh, uh, in, in short, and I think this is the overall driving force, you have Japan that's powered its industrial revolution as you said through coal and something that you know a lot of emerging economies are saying well why shouldn't we do the same right today um and being told not to um but japan did it through coal uh a little bit of hydropower too um then it uh it sort of saw that it it you know, it needed to clean up the pollution and therefore move to coal, uh, sorry, to oil. So that, that
0: was, it was, it was a pollution based concern because that's, that's very unusual.
1: Oh, the, it was one of the, I mean, you know, you have smog, you have uh, a lot of, um, you know, um, air issues, right? It wasn't just that. Right. Um, it okay. was, but it was certainly one of the considerations. Um, and uh, you can see a similar echo, you know, what's going on with Beijing, right? Uh, in recent decades, sort of initial, we'll, 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 we'll use coal because we have to use it for a rapid sort of expansion. But then realization that after time, that's not a good idea. Um, and then, of course, as, uh, Japan sort of considers this, this new source, power source, nuclear, um, not just as an energy solution, but also as an engineering solution. A lot of, I think, a lot of Japanese economy, uh, economic structures are based on the idea that we take a technology, we make it as good as we can, and then we export it. So then, uh, we're essentially, um, not just gaining something that works for this country and for us, but we, we're gaining an export tool, a product that we can market. That's why I think Japan is still such a, an important nation, uh, for, for the energy transition in Southeast Asia, for example, because, you know, what happens in Japan will get mirrored and will get supported by Japan, you know, elsewhere. But to go back to the history, um, you have this decision to go nuclear. There is a very strong uh, social pushback. Okay, that's absolutely clear. Um, that social, that you know, there are. If, if you look, uh, if you look at the internet, you'll find lots of uh, kind of Machiavellian stories about the CIA being involved, the U.S. government being involved in trying to sort of push against, uh, uh, neutralize the uh, the anti-nuclear uh, lobbies uh, in Japan. There is a political undercurrent there, right? I think we can't ignore that. Um, the, a lot of the anti-nuclear, um, sort of feelings in Japan, again, stemming from the, 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 um, you know, uh, the Hiroshima, the, the Nagasaki experience, um, they were linked to a more socialist, left-leaning communist, uh, Japanese communist party, um, crowd, for lack of a a better word, Um, more socially minded people. Um, That's one of the reasons that, you know, the U.S. was trying to sort of minimize those influences in Japan and trying to sort of uh, push the country more towards, yeah, you know, a a more capitalist democratic model. I think there was, uh, you know, if you look at the history, there really was a strong chance that Japan would have turned into a socialist country, um, you know, very soon after World War II. Uh, there was a very, very strong, um, sort of socialist communist, uh, feeling in, in the country at the time. So nuclear energy is involved in some of those discussions, but then you have, how do you sort of, uh, you, you have, um, local municipalities, local towns and cities being told that this is, uh, this is a very, very safe technology uh, that is also going to bring them money. So you have this uh, somewhat, uh, I think it's called the donut effect, right? Where you uh, you site the nuclear power plant in a town, and the town that's right next to it will get uh, subsidies. This is not cash that goes to the town to spend as it will, but it's money that the power plant will give to the local authorities to spend on um, You know, public uh, facilities, swimming pools, you know, a new uh, uh, town hall, that kind of thing. So you'll find that a lot of pow- uh, towns around the, the nuclear power plants have obviously got maybe uh, unnecessarily uh, t- too good <laughs> uh, public <laughs> facilities for the for the size of the population um, and then you know uh, lower down uh I mean the further away you, you get uh, the less you get also over time did those subsidies decrease but certainly that kind of literally buy-in was was uh, was the way it was approached now the downside to this kind of thing is also that you're trying to overpromise and you're trying to placate everyone by saying this is you know 100% safe almost and uh, a lot of re- recriminations that happened after Fukushima accident were about that uh, were about sort of saying wait a minute you the government you even though it was private companies that built these uh, power plants but you the government you persuaded us that saying this is 100% safe I think that kind of uh that 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 over over egging the pudding is 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 not a good thing again a very quick example of that is the fukushima plant uh itself had actually quite a few robots installed these were safety robots that were supposed to you know uh help out in times of emergency and so on um and, uh, after a while, the staff at the plant said, g- apparently got nervous, uh, saying that, you know, why do we need, it's a safe plant. Why on earth would we need a, a robot to come in? So <laughs> after a while, the robots were taken away, you know, disabled and then the whole program was, was scrapped because you didn't want to unnerve the people. Uh, and then of course, when the accident happens, uh, Japan, the country of robotics, doesn't have a robot that can go inside the power plant, uh, and at least take some footage. And you have U.S. robots, you have German robots coming in and, and doing those jobs. It was, it was quite a shameful moment. In fact, there was, um, uh, a little bit of a, you know, a national, uh, again, sort of soul searching about how and why that happened. Um, but again, you know, it was it was about the government trying to force a policy. There was certainly a lot of social unrest and, and demonstrations against nuclear power. When it was initially being brought in in the uh, late 60s, 70s. Um, some of the clashes, you know, I, I've been to the Fukui uh, region, which is home to, I think, the, the, the most nuclear reactors of any prefecture in Japan. And uh, you know, we talked to some of the, the 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 people in the smaller towns, uh we talked to this Buddhist uh, priest uh who who's very anti-nuclear and he said, you know, he remembers uh during his father's generation, you know, that there were there were bloody uh clashes. In fact, I think uh, he said there was somebody in the community that died from some of these, you know, extremely heated uh altercations. Um police had to be brought in, you know, numerous times. Certainly it was not an easy sell. So I think that's probably why the government went all out to try and sort of overpromise, um, and uh, you know that that unfortunately, when you do that, then, then you know people pick holes with it afterwards. But certainly that was the introduction. Once it was introduced, uh, once nuclear power became sort of a mainstay of certain municipalities and localities. You know, obviously, then people are engaged, uh, or should I say, people have something, uh, you know, at stake. And uh, to kind of bring it to modern day politics, for example, um, you have the election that's at the end of this month, the general election. You have generally, um, uh, you know, the unions of the power companies, right? The unions of the power companies tend to vote with the left-leaning, you know, the more socialist-leaning uh, opposition. Uh, this time around, um, some some recent newspaper reports say that the unions of the power companies that generally own the uh, the nuclear power plants in Japan, um, they're not going to vote against- with the opposition. They're going to go with the ruling party, which is unusual, right? Because the ruling party is the more center-right, if you like. Uh, but they're doing that because the, the opposition wants to get rid of nuclear, wants to phase out nuclear. And for them, that means, you know, a loss of jobs. So, again, it's so, people yeah, pretending.
0: Let's explore that because, again, that's such a fascinating story about the siting of the nuclear plants in Fukushima as a jobs program, as a way to transition, a just transition to kind of use that language and echo it back through history for workers from the fossil fuel industry, from coal into nuclear and the donut effect, as you were talking about. So, I mean, after Fukushima, you had a uh, before sh- Fukushima, 30 percent of the country is nuclear. And I think it's within a year of Fukushima. Um, there is zero power production from nuclear. Um What was the impact of that like on these communities? Um, This is—I can't imagine. It—it sounds like it would be devastating to those those local towns. (laughs) Um, And I do want to explore what what the alternatives were, what it was replaced with. Um, I am uh, blanking on the estimate of the, the billions of dollars spent per year to import the fossil fuels that replace the nuclear fleet. But perhaps you have that at your fingertips. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I went through the numbers, uh, cause it's fascinating. So let me, um, let me address first the, the initial sort of the post, um, post accident impact on the energy side. So, um, Japan is very unusual, uh, in, in its power grid, in that the country is split between two, uh, systems, uh, two different frequencies, uh, 50 gigahertz and, uh, you know, 60. And it's because, again, it goes back to what you were talking about, the, uh, sort of the major restoration, the very rapid, uh, industrialization of the country, uh, the, if you like, the central and northern part going with, um, uh you know one set of equipment to the uh the western and southern part going with another set of equipment so you have you know us and German um power grids installed. Um those two grids only have a small connector between them, an interconnector. So um that means uh once you have a major shutdown and of of power capacity um in uh, in sort of one side of the country it's not easy to to get uh or very very limited how much power you can send through to the other side of the country that's kind of one of the uh the weaknesses of the japanese grid at the moment um because a lot of nuclear power um was concentrated um no let me re- rephrase that nuclear power as a component of the energy mix uh, was even greater in the Kansai, so the the the, the Osaka, Kyoto, Kobe, uh, those cities, you know, the the, the Kansai region. Uh, they they much more reliant on nuclear power than even the the Tokyo or the
0: Northeast. You know, where the accident took place. So they might be 50, 60% of the grid in that, in those focused areas.
1: Wouldn't have been 50, 60%, but it certainly would have been, you know, um, again, off the top of my head, but, you know, a third to, to uh, or higher, you know. So if suddenly you have to shut down, we're talking about four, five, six, seven and upwards gigawatts of power. You have massive shortages and you can't sort of receive the extra power from elsewhere. So you did have, um, sort of periods of, uh, power shortages in, um, in the Kansai region immediately after Fukushima. But surprisingly, um, Japan did navigate. It was a, so sort of a very kind of a gingem navigation, but it did navigate the, the post-Fukushima period, um, you know, in 2011, 12, 13. Fairly well. There were, there were no blackouts as predicted. This partly because you had a very strong, um, power savings program called in So literally, uh, saving power, uh, which was dr- sort of drilled down into everyone on a, on a individual level and then on a corporate level. And you had offices, um, you know, that would literally have the thermostat at 28 degrees. Now, I would say the Japanese office generally tends to be warmer than a, you know, an office, let's say in the US, uh, or North America. But even so, you know, a Japanese office 28, would, would, that would be pretty hot. Um, I remember anecdotal evidence of, uh, sort of one worker, um, uh, and, uh, you know, one staffer at, uh, at a company in Tokyo saying that, uh, you know i found a spot somewhere in the office that's not near a window and it's down to 26 degrees in that spot and i'm not moving <laughs> you know uh so right. obviously it was a re- it was a tough time uh, not just for uh, sort of industry having to curtail a certain amount of uh, production but o- o- on an individual level you know elevator all the lights would have been off in a lot of buildings um you know uh, some elevators were shut in certain buildings i think you know tepco the company that uh, owns the uh, the fukushima reactor i think you know they they tried to take the the extra yard and like literally switched off as much power of in their offices as they could so people had to use the stairs even for high floors and so on so that was the way to get through it but even then i would say even though you had the entire fleet shut down uh, several days after the accident, um, you actually had quite a few of the reactors again in that Kansai area, the really nuclear reliant area come back up and they worked. Uh, I think, you know, we had about two, three, four reactors up and running, uh, for at least, you know, 2011, 12 period. And then it kind of tailed off. Um, because again, you know, how could they otherwise, you know, get through without blackouts? But just to give you the, uh, impact on a, on a uh, sort of economic level, what that meant. Um, again, I'm not going to talk about emissions because I think it's obvious that the emissions went up quite a lot. But money-wise, uh, this was a huge, huge, huge um, change. So you have, um, after 2011, the power tariffs rise by about 30% for industry, right? And about 20% for households because of the higher import costs of LNG and coal. Um, LNG imports grow by 25% in three years okay and that's from japan being the largest importer of lng in the world already at that time uh you've got coal thermal coal imports up by 7% in 3 years right that's that's not small um and clearly because japan's buying a lot of lng and a lot of um of gas some of the prices uh, are pushed up on a global level and you have uh, you know, you have Japan spending 38% more for its LNG, uh, about 60, 15, 16% more for its coal. Um, so what that means is in the year, in the fiscal year 2013, which is when Japan had no nuclear online, uh, at least for periods of time, Japan in that year is spending an extra $100 billion on its power bill okay for for the fossil fuels to to uh to to produce electricity okay so um you know again to another sort of data point um last year of course you have the pandemic so it's not an easy comparison but last year uh japan spent less on lng um than it did before fukushima okay um and uh, that that just shows you how much extra fossil fuels it had to import and burn immediately um, to, to to keep the lights on and to keep the economy um and and in industry
0: going. And so, I guess the question is, you know, why did they shut down all their nuclear plants? Um, from what I understand, the earthquake um, triggered devices that safely shut down all the reactors, but then Fukushima had a loss of coolant situation because of the flooded uh, generators. The other plants, um, was there any damage, or was this just public backlash? Fear, um, like, why did they shut? Like, this is an extraordinary move to take to shut down thirty percent of your generation and and make up for that with fossil and like you said, these um, demand uh, response uh, behaviors, um, right from the corporations down to the individual households. It's an extraordinary energy shock.
1: Right. All right.
0: I'm sure there's parallels, but I'm I'm having a hard time finding one. But yeah, what what was the rationale to to shut down the entire fleet as a result of uh, Fukushima?
1: Um, well, again, I'll quickly say for anyone that's, that, that wants to have an example of, um, what it would be to make a quick energy transition. Well, that, that's one example. Uh, you could shut down the entire nuclear fleet and, uh, the immediate response will be to, in most countries would be to do what Japan did. Why did so is because if you're
0: rich, if you're rich enough, I guess, right? Because that's, that's a big proviso. Japan's one of the wealthiest countries in the world.
1: Right. So if you can afford the LNG and you have the gas fired capacity, uh, then that all well and good. Otherwise, you're going to burn a lot of oil and coal. Um, you know, or you are going, well, you know, of course you could build a lot of renewables, but it, again, they, they also do not take, you know, uh, one month or even one year to, to, to get to that scale to the get to, you know, 45 gigawatts of nuclear capacity suddenly wiped out. <laughs> it would be a challenge to replace that uh, within five years. never mind, uh, you know one year. but why shut down? Well, look, okay, clearly you had a loss of confidence in nuclear power on a public level um, there was, this fudging if you like that yes we can't not have the lights on therefore we will allow certain reactors um in the kansai area to go back on which sort of would contradict the, the the thing the issue but you know clearly uh while some plants needed further inspections um you know one that was uh just north of fukushima uh there was a little bit of damage um and they wanted to to look at it more carefully um uh, but i think in a lot of cases it was about sort of uh, showing the public that um, the government would uh, take immediate action because you suddenly have a, a very strong anti-nuclear feeling. You have, I think, as much as you know, 80% of the population mm-hmm, saying, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we want nuclear out. Uh, you have demonstrations in central Tokyo, which, again, just doesn't happen. You have an outpouring of emotion. Um, so... You know any government is going to to then react in, in a strong way. So um, they they looked at the causes of the accident, not just on a technical level, but also you know on an, an industry level. Um, there is a uh, sort of a phrase for how the nuclear uh, industry in Japan um, sort of operates or operated. Uh, it was called in you know nuclear village because a little bit of a sort of an inside-y, um job in the sense that. Uh, the industry, sorry, the ministry responsible for uh, promoting nuclear power is also the ministry responsible for monitoring it or, you know, one of its agencies. So it was seen that that was kind of a conflict of interest. Um, Japan set up an entirely new independent uh, regulatory body, the NRA, Nuclear Re- Regulation um, Authority, that, you know, is now in place and is a, you know, a very, very tough uh, regulator, um, I would say, on the industry right now, and then, then you know, they brought along an entirely new set of safety standards that they wanted every plant to take on. Um, you had a revaluation of uh, of uh, tsunami anti-tsunami measures, a revaluation of anti-earthquake measures. Um, to so, first it was a case of drawing up the new measures and saying where we expect each plant to be at. Then it was case of sending uh, telling all the nuclear power plants and operators you know you have to meet these new new measures um, to be able to restart uh, that cost a lot of money It's still costing a lot of money I mean we're talking of uh, vast sums of money right because uh, you you have um, uh, essentially you're 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 almost sort of building half a nuclear power plant in some cases.
0: What's happening in these communities? Like we talked about the coal transition to nuclear. So, mm-hmm. like th- these these communities that work there, these are large plants. Thousands right. of people work at nuclear right. plants. Welfare dole? Like what 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 happens to them? Do they get jobs at new fossil fuel plants? I know that Japan ended up, or there were plans to build. Uh, I think something like twenty new coal plants. Just and just as an aside, it's it's. I mean, there's tons of differences between. The Ukrainian response to Chernobyl and the Japanese response to Fukushima and, you know, different political systems, democratic versus authoritarian, rich country versus not so rich country, but interesting that Chernobyl units... I think one through three continued to operate until 2002 or something. Uh, like one's ability to 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 do a crash phase out is again so dependent on being a wealthy country. But yeah, let's let's just go back to that. What what happened to those communities around those nuclear plants and those those workers? And is that part of what's motivating those unions to actually vote for a center right party now? I think that. The
1: majority of the uh, community response immediately after the accident was, of course, to be either wary or against nuclear power, uh, you know, as an emotional response. Um, I think the people, you know, for whom it, it is a job issue probably feel very, very conflicted and half done um but you know when the majority of the country is protesting against nuclear power and it's seen as a you know uh, as a pariah for for a long time you're just not going to get um these communities discussing you know the need for restarts um even though the the uniqueness of the japanese uh sort of nuclear um full, um nuclear operational model is that technically by law once the uh, regulator the industry regulator says the plant can restart they they technically can but it is sort of an absolute given that the plant or the operator will go to the local community and will get the local governor the prefectural uh governor and you'll get the local city mayor and the, the city assembly to vote and say yes we allow the restart and in and in and, and, and that should happen every single time you have a, a restart so it's quite a it's a very um sort of Socially minded processes, in the sense that it should have the community backing. The, those, I think, there was a period. Um, I'll call it a mourning period, uh, where it was sort of it was expected that things would have to just, you know, quiet down for a while. Um, then maybe around sort of three or four years after the accident, maybe you know, four or five years after the accident, especially with the the high uh, energy costs. Uh, and the high import costs of all the fossil fuels. Um, there was a lot more, um, sort of conversations about restarting nuclear. And of course, you, that's when you have the initial restarts, um, of the, uh, the nuclear power plants happening, um, based on sort of the new rules. But again, very, very few at the beginning. Um, The communities that, that, you know, for, for whom this is a, you know, a big job and economic issue, I think they've always been either quietly pro, um, or at least neutral. Um, but it isn't always, uh, you know, about that one town or those, you know, two towns, um, that are right next to the power plant. Because as I said, the prefecture, you know, the prefecture, the wider prefecture also has to agree. And if you're, you know, a town 50 kilometers away, Um, you don't get the economic benefits of the nuclear power plant, uh, but you are pretty close to it. So you may just sort of say you're against because, um, plenty of your people will say this is too dangerous and so on.
0: Yeah. I'm guessing there's not, you know, there was an interesting, uh, piece by, uh, Ida Rieshelm, uh, who runs the Thoughtscapism blog where she was looking at, um, the lifespan impacts of living in the most contaminated areas of the evacuation zone in Fukushima versus resettling into some of the more polluted areas in in Tokyo. And it mm-hmm. was hands down more dangerous and would take more, you know, time off of your life to to move to Tokyo. And by that rationale we should evacuate you know parts of Tokyo, you know most of Shanghai and Beijing, etc. It was it was an interesting argument, right? And that understanding of relative mm. risks is probably not something that's um, well emphasized. But but in, in terms of that that coal buildout, um, it's it's an interesting interesting parallel to make. Um, I do want to because I, I you know I, I, we have another twenty minutes or so, and I, I do really want to dig into some other areas as well. Um, sure. and maybe we need to hit hit the rewind button a little bit to move back in time. Because um, you know, I think listeners of this podcast um, are very interested in the examples of successful kind of on-budget and on-time nuclear buildouts, and what we can learn from them. Whether those um, economic and regulatory um, um, uh, situations that can be replicated um, in the context of climate change to create a rapid energy transition that still allows for human flourishing without um, trashing our environment or atmosphere. Um, so. Uh, do do you have any expertise or, or knowledge of um, the initial buildouts um you, you mentioned um i think i have some sort of pro public sector biases here uh, but i think you mentioned that the uh the nuclear buildout was largely a, a private endeavor private companies um, mm-hmm. so are you able to walk me through a little bit about sort of the speed um, and scale of the deployment um who did it and um and and whether it was i've heard that japanese nuclear um was pretty efficient. I think the, the fastest plant built in the world was a Japanese plant in something like 36 months. Um, so yeah, t- tell me a little bit about that sort of golden age of, of the build-out. Uh,
1: sure. So um, I don't have, you know, a, a super detailed kn- knowledge about uh, all, all the build-outs, but just in, as a kind of a rough um, guide to what happened. Uh, you clearly had, uh, the, y- you clearly had the government sort of pushing it as a policy idea. And, uh, but you also had the, the big, um, power utilities, um, which, uh, sort of, you know, used to be the, the regional power utilities. Now it's sort of a liberalized market. But in any case, each power utility would be in charge of its own region. Uh, the TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company was, um, you know, uh, also, uh, if you like, it was, uh, it had close ties with the Northeast. Again, traditionally, because the Northeast, the Fukushima area provided the, uh, the coal and the fire, uh, the, the, the coal-fired, uh, you know, generation that would go down to Tokyo. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, it was Kansai Electric, uh, the, the, the company in charge of the Kansai region. It was, uh, t- Tokyo uh, Electric. It was Kyushu Electric, the, uh, sort of, uh, the western side, um, of Japan that were taking the lead. And then you had, you know, other utilities would sort of have over time built, you know, one or two, uh, either reactors or, you know, one nuclear facility with a few reactors. Um, the, the, uh, oh, and I, I should say, you know, Chubu Electric as well, central. Um, the most of the construction was, was done, um, as far as I understand was, was done, you know, fairly, uh, economically, um, but it was mainly because, uh, again, it initially was a, it was a case of sort of that U.S.-Japanese collaboration. And in fact, you know, remnants of that are still around today. You know, GE Hitachi is one of the big players in the nuclear field. Um, you had uh, Japanese companies like Hitachi, Toshiba, Mitsubishi Heavy taking on U.S. reactor designs on license, sort of building them here. And then over time learning to create, you know, um, similar reactor technologies uh, in Japan. Um, and sort of then perfecting them or improving their designs and, and their efficiency over time uh, until, you know, I think around, you'd say, the 1980s, Japan became a pretty proficient builder of nuclear power plants. And that would probably be the sort of the, the golden age, the 80s, the especially second half of the 80s, the 90s. Um, I think you had a peak of nuclear power in Japan in 1998 when uh, it accounted for like 36% of generation. Power generation. Um, certainly the plan was to try and push it to 40%, um, by, you know, uh, sort of, you know, maybe closer to 2020. Um, there were talk of, of trying to push it even higher in the future, but you did have a little bit of a drop off, uh, in, in in the fortunes of nuclear power, even sort of before the Fukushima accident, partly because there were some other, uh, smaller accidents. There was a very big earthquake, you may remember, uh, in the mid 2000s, uh, around close to the Kashiwa, Kashiwazaki Kariwa plant. Okay, that took a lot of its uh, facilities offline, well, all of its facilities offline, there were cracks found um, in certain sort of parts of the plant. Um, So you had, uh, it's not been an entirely sort of smooth ride, if you like, but Japan had improved the nuclear technology and uh had become a major supplier of uh some of the turbines and the uh power island right for 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 nuclear reactors not just for it, for its own nuclear reactors but also for for other vendors around the world and so it had a lot of ambitions for to take that abroad you know um it was bidding for contracts in other countries around the world um, I think it was uh, Prime Minister Khan, the one in charge in, uh, at the time of Fukushima, who actually said that uh, my job as a Japanese prime minister is to be a reactor salesman. You know, it, it, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It is seen as a big uh, sort of the export potential, technology potential is is a big part of the the country's economy of ESOS. Um, but you know, it did, it did come through that sort of decades of improvement of, of creating new designs. Um, again, for those, you know, are looking towards a kind of a, a brighter future for nuclear, I I think, you know, I definitely recommend looking at the, um, at the high temperature, uh, gas cooled reactor program in Japan. Uh, it's a, you know, it's the HTTR design that was, um, that was actually developed in the 2000s. It was very, very good. Uh, one of several designs that, uh, Japan came up with, but, uh, wasn't pursued because it wasn't part of the, uh, it didn't allow for a full new, nu- uh, nuclear fuel cycle, right? So, um, it wasn't a, a design of a reactor that, uh, that once the, the fuel rods are, are sort of used, could be recycled and reused. Um, so that was kind of taken out because the nuclear fuel cycle is a big part of the, um, sort of raison d'etre for the, uh, for the Japanese nuclear program, right? It goes back to the energy security. If we can have a, uh, nuclear fuel that can be reused, recycled, either through mixed oxide, uh, you know, MOX fuel or uh, later on, fast breed reactors, then, then, you know, we're really reaching that sort of energy security point, uh, pinnacle. But, um, as I said, you do have a series of, um, quite glaring and unfortunate, um, accidents in the sort of the late nineties, two thousands that kind of stimmy some of that progress. Um, the, the fast breed reactor in Japan, uh, that program never quite, uh, sort of works out. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the big test reactor, the Monju reactor, uh, has been decommissioned. Um, so, uh, so you, <laughs> again, uh, I, I know I'm sort of mixing up the signals here a little bit. There's some negativity, there's positivity, but I would say that, you know, you've got to be honest about it. That There has been a huge challenge to, uh, to make the nuclear program as good as it, you know, w- fit with the aims that, that were set aside for it, even in the sixties, seventies and eighties. Uh, and so the challenge now is to say, well, can we, can we push through the uh, the new technologies? You know, in the US, a lot of the talk is about small modular reactors, and certainly Japan is starting to invest in that. you'll you'll may have seen that you know a couple of Japanese companies have invested in new scale. Right. Because they'd like to support the SMR program and maybe, you know, bring that to Japan. Certainly part of the, uh, green growth strategy for the, uh, the current government. But, uh, you know, I'd like, to, you know, personally, I think it would be great to see the, you know, HTTR program again, uh, which finally getting some, 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 some extra funding, um, from, from this year. It's, uh, restarted the, the reactor. Um, you've got, I think five or six other countries involved in that. And what's really interesting about that is because it's gas cooled. obviously don't have the water issues you know that the the hydrogen explosions uh, that you had around the Fukushima uh, plant you also have a very strong possibility to generate hydrogen Um, that sort of that reactor design is supposed supposedly leads itself quite well to hydrogen manufacturing and in fact um, you know interestingly that Poland you know which has traditionally been very coal reliant uh, and has been pushed by the EU to, you know, move away from coal. Has said, okay, we will start a nuclear program. And uh, the the nuclear re- the reactor design that Poland supposedly would like to move forward with is the HTR. They'd like to move forward with the uh, the Japanese reactor design, um, which uh, you know the Chinese have also mimicked, <laughs> uh, but has not quite you know, and and are sim- you know moving in a similar direction as well.
0: Let's let's talk a bit about uh, the Japanese decarbonization alternatives. Um, I was reading in one of your Nikkei Asia articles that uh, Japan has the most solar panels per square meter of any country on Earth. Um, it's obviously an island; it's a little right. bit confined in that regard. Um, I think it was in Bill Gates' book he was describing Tokyo and just what a what a megapolis this is—thirty plus million people—and the idea of you know putting a bunch of uh, wind turbines out in the Pacific and the mm-hmm. typhoons that come and you know when the wind's too good you got to turn the turbines off and obviously when it's not there and Europe's learning that painful lesson right now with a, a wind drought of you know 2021. Um, what are some of the um, alternatives to nuclear that are being bandied about and how how realistic are they?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a very, very good question. So you probably know that the new, uh, draft energy plan for, for 2030 energy plan for Japan, um, is to keep nuclear at around 2022%. There's plenty of people who, you know, criticize that and say, you know, Japan shouldn't or come on, it's unreal. Let's get out of it. But the alternatives, uh, you know, you really have to think through the alternatives before you completely dismiss nuclear. And, uh, here's the deal that, um, right now, because of the rapid build out of nuclear, of uh, solar power plants, uh, after Fukushima, which was, you know, done by some good companies, but done by some, let's say a little bit less, more good companies, uh, well, maybe a little bit more cowboy-like uh, outfits, um, you have a lot of challenges. One is you have a lot of, uh, Japan is not a very flat land. It's mountains, uh, you know, a lot of trees, uh, and uh, not, not enough flat land. So there's been a challenge to find areas, uh, that are sort of free and able to, to have utility solar and finding more of those areas has become a problem, not just because there's not, um, as a lot of free, uh, uh, easily accessible land around, but also because as soon as you have such a huge build out, uh, relatively speaking to the country, uh, you have local opposition. So the NIMBY impact has been huge in Japan. Um, you have in the last sort of three, four years, uh, from almost zero, you have 150 municipalities in Japan. So about a tenth of all the municipalities in Japan have put in an ordinance saying we either will limit how much uh, solar power and you know wind power you can build in our region or we'll ban it completely. Right, because they a lot of you know for good or bad, local residents find it a nuisance. They don't like the view. People complain about wind turbines making noise, etc. Whether whether that's fair or not, but that's just how people feel. Uh, And uh, therefore, you know, making a assuming that you can suddenly build another ten gigawatts worth of solar in Japan is is a little bit optimistic. I think maybe with, you know, where let's say solar is getting into a, a more interesting spot is a, some of that integrated, uh, sort of agri-solar, you know, mixing up agriculture and solar panels or, you know, the perovskite solar cells where you have essentially a solar cell inserted into building material. Um, those things are starting to get into it. I mean, I'm not sure that it will be all of that will be immediately ready, but. At least that is a sort of potential for the future for offshore wind. Japan has very big plans for offshore wind. The previous, uh, sort of prime minister really pushed this plan. And I think it'll still keep getting pushed, you know, forward. But just to give you a, an idea on, on sort of the numbers, um, the plan is to have about 10 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030. And then, you know, ramp that up to maybe all of 45 gigawatts or so by 2040, 45. Um, which would be equivalent to, to kind of like a nuclear fleet, yeah. but, uh, now it seems that, okay, maybe things aren't quite as simple as we thought, and maybe we'll only have about, you know, two or three gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. So, you know, people talk about nuclear being, oh, it's, it's, it takes so long to build one. It's, it's crazy amount of money, but you know, offshore wind is not going to take a short amount of time to build either. Uh, it's also a case of building an entirely new industry, uh, almost an entirely new industry for Japan, which ha- currently has almost no, no, uh, offshore wind capacity. So that's going to take time to scale.
0: Are the material resources an issue at all? I mean, Japan obviously imports a lot of things, but these are very mineral intensive processes. Exactly. Um, in terms of, I think you've written about that.
1: It's not something that gets discussed a lot in Japan, but I think it should. Um, because I think uh, traditionally the people that really support like 100% renewables, no nuclear, um, I don't find them discussing the sort of the raw materials implications of that very much, uh, which is unfortunate because, you know, you you, you are, you, you're talking about, for example, with solar, we all know that, you know, a lot of the materials are currently being sourced from China uh, that obviously has some security and geopolitical implications. Um, it also has an economic implication. You know, if, if Japan has almost no major producers of solar panels left, um, then it's just, uh, you know, what's sort of the economic upside? Um, so it, it is a tough issue because you, you have this very idealistic approach on the one hand, the, the, you know, and, 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 and yet there are some very serious constraints on the other. Um, then, of course, the other thing being pushed very strongly is the hydrogen economy. Um, ammonia, hydrogen. Um, at the moment, it's being sort of penciled in as about 1% of uh, the total power generation by 2030. I think that the attractiveness of uh, sort of hydrogen, ammonia for a lot of, uh, you know, power utilities in Japan is that they're hoping that they can take a coal-fired coal, power, coal uh, fired power plant, switch that coal over to ammonia, uh, you know, initially in parts, just co-firing. And then over time, entirely switch it from coal to ammonia um and you know similar from lng switch it over to from you know lng to hydrogen over time at the moment the issue is cost clearly that's going to be a big jump in cost um it also, you know, you also have to build the entire sort of global uh, value chain of production, uh, of hydrogen production. And then you have the same arguments about, well, wait a minute, how clean is this ammonia? How clean is this hydrogen? If it's all going to come from, uh, you know, as current test projects are, either coal or gas, natural gas, then we sort of, aren't we back to the same issue of, uh, you know, uh, burning, you know, CO2 to create these clean fuels. Um, the solution often touted, much discussed in Japan and elsewhere is obviously carbon capture. Um, but the warning sign for that is that currently Japan has one, uh, test carbon capture facility. That's it. So until, you know, until we build a or secure a carbon capture, a facility of any size uh you know you still have to talk about it and as an as an option for the future as opposed to kind of a concrete thing that you know we definitely can rely on
0: I just wanted to close by asking you, um, we've been covering the, uh, the coming winter energy crunch, focused mostly on Europe recently. Um, Mark Nelson did a great episode for us on uh, you know, what's going on in the UK in particular. But um, how are things shaping up uh, in Japan? I've, I've heard uh, one of the Chinese energy ministers said, you know, we will secure energy supply sort of by any means necessary, whatever the cost. Right. Are um, our, our prices going through the roof? What are the implications uh, for Japan? will that start up more nuclear reactors or is that too short of a time frame for uh, uh
1: so nuclear has had a little bit of a kind of i would say has had some positive momentum in the last year in terms of restarts in japan okay so we went from about three or four reactors operating to i think we had a uh, you know nine uh until sort of one stop recently so it has had a little bit of a positive momentum but that isn't sorry it isn't all about sort of fossil fuel prices and so on it is uh you know it, it's a it's a much longer local politics uh and many other things involved um in terms of sort of being slightly cushioned against some of these global vi- volatilities in energy prices um japan has a lot of long term contracts for lng and also coal so to a degree it's protected it, it's not 100% but you know um I think, um, what is it? You know, 70 or 80% of the, the gas comes into Japan on, on long-term contracts that have a set price or a formula.
0: That's a big contrast with Europe where they've tried to be lean and mean. And yeah, exactly.
1: So, so Europe, Europe has Europe. Well, Europe has had the difficult relationship with Russia, right? For a really, really long time. So, um, that was seen as the smart way to sort of transition away from that relationship or minimize it. Um, at the moment, of course, you know, the, well, you can read it how you want to read it, but certainly, uh, it's not a straightforward <laughs> uh, negotiation. That's for sure. So Japan's always be- relied on these long-term contracts. It's been told that it shouldn't, you know, it should move to spot pricing because it's cheaper to do it that way. I think now looking at what's going on, uh, Japan will just say, wait, you know what? I think long-term pricing is, is, is probably, you know, good. We'll, we'll stick with uh, with mostly that strategy. Um, but does it mean that energy prices will go up? Um, we had actually, uh, Japan had a very, very strong shock, price shock in January this year. Um, came before the Texas uh, event a situation, of course. But uh, yeah, same thing, you know, um, you have a a... Short period of time where a lot of other uh, generation gets cut off, you know, uh, strong storms uh, cover solar panels temporarily. So, you know, solar power is down. Turns out that uh, pump storage, right? Uh, uh, another alternative um, is uh, powered by the surplus solar power. So therefore you don't have this uh, the pump storage uh, uh, sort of availability. Um, and uh, then, you know, you, you're looking at baseload. At that time, there was a lot of problems with, uh, securing cargoes. Literally, you couldn't get ships to, to Japan, right? Because there was a, wow. a lot of ships stuck in Panama Canal. Uh, there were some weather conditions uh-huh. that prevented ships getting through again, uh, uh, high prices that were pushing, you know, uh, sellers, um, to kind of choose where do I want to sell Europe or Asia? Um, so I think it does show that, uh, especially with the, the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, you know, the lockdowns, all of that, it's so much harder to predict. How much gas will I need? How much coal will I need? How much can I rely on nuclear? And in Japan's case, it's hard to predict how much you can rely on nuclear if, you know, you don't know whether you can restart it. The government can say we want to restart all the nuclear reactors now, right? But until the local uh, authorities acquiesce, until you have a uh, you know uh, the the public mood generally favoring that and and he has done a little bit recently because of decarbonization right i think there is a as a, a, a definitely a, a line coming through very strongly in in the media and sort of public opinion that you know if we let go of all nuclear today uh then we, we're just not going to meet that 2030 goals so even I would say even those that have been vocal against nuclear power in Japan, you know, politicians and so on, uh, you know, the candidate lost out for the uh, for the for the current sort of prime ministership. Uh, he was for phasing out nuclear power, but even he was not sort of uh, saying I'm going to shut it down today or tomorrow, you know because otherwise if you do that then you know your idea of having clean energy reducing emissions and meeting the targets in 2030 just become wow just <laughs> extraordinarily difficult
0: you're i think that's probably a, a great place to leave it a uh, very wide-ranging conversation you've got a, a lot of expertise in a number of areas and a lot of interesting insights uh hearkening back to again, growing up so close to Chernobyl and and being in Japan during the Fukushima incident. Um, So thank you so much for making the time. Um, It was a challenge for us to schedule this, but what a (laughs) gift of uh, modern communications technology that we can be sitting in our our studies, our offices, and and having this conversation uh, across so many time zones. Thank you for making the time.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. Have a great day.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.